In this week's episode, we interview someone who has taken a journey through and to the other side of depression and see what we can learn from his story. Bringing hope and healing. It's your source for personal growth, mental health, and interesting ideas. Thoughtful Mind with Svee. Here's your host, Svee Hilsenrath. And welcome back to Thoughtful Mind with Svee. I'm your host, Svee Hilsenrath. This week's Gratitude City shout-out is to Orlando, Florida. Thank you to the people of Orlando, Florida for listening in. This week is the first part of a two-part episode where I interview Yosef Zeldman, a young man with a story to tell. Yosef has lived with depression. Although there are parts of his story that are unique, most of his story is one that can be related to by anybody who has lived through depression or is living with depression now. One unique part of Yosef's story is that he has taken his lived experience, taken his life story, and used it to help others. As you'll hear, Yosef has taken his story to other people. He speaks in schools and has put videos on the internet trying to educate and empower those who suffer from depression. And now here is the first part of my interview with Yosef Zeldman. And welcome back to Thoughtful Mind with Tzvi. I'm here with a very special guest, Yosef Zeldman. I've known Yosef for a number of years now, and I first met him toward the beginning of the journey that he's going to describe to us. Over the years, I've seen a dramatic change in Yosef, and I'm interested, as you will be, in hearing about where he was, where he is now, and how he got there. So, Yosef, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. I think we're just going to dive right into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and why we should listen to what you have to say. Oh, okay. The big questions. Hello, so my name is Yosef Zeldman, as uh, Tzvi said. I am 18 years old, and I was born in Rochester, New York. I moved to uh, Toronto, Canada when I was five, and I have been living there ever since. Um, the story I'm here to tell is one that is uh, a little heavy, but I'm comfortable sharing with because I think the more people share their experiences in the realm of mental health, the more other people are helped by learning from other experiences, um, which I think is very important. So I've um, been through some things in my life that uh, um, I've been able to come out of very strong, but it definitely was not always that way. Um, I, I guess my story goes all the way back to when I was about um, nine years old, uh, almost 10. Uh, and I unfortunately, my father um, passed away. Uh, and that was that was a bit of a beginning of um, a whole spiral of events over the next six, five, six years. Um, at the time when it happened, it um, considering the nature of the death, um, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but it was drug related. Um, it was related to a very dangerous drug called opioids. Um, and because of what opioids does to people, I'm not sure how aware people are of what opioids does, but it's essentially autopilot for your brain and you become very irrational and very uh, susceptible to nothing but impulses and um, a lot of not so nice sides of people can come out. So because of the nature of the death, um, I was actually able to recover from the situation relatively okay because as as morbid as it may seem my life was a little better um after my father passed away just because of the circumstance i mean my father was an amazing person before the opioids but the opioids did do 
things to him. Um, so initially after his death, um, I was in child therapy and I, you know, I got through it. Um, I was able to get through it, um, in about a year or two. Uh, and by that point I had to have been in grade six, grade five. Um, and my life went relatively smooth from grades five to eight. Um, things went, you know, but then I got to high school and, uh, First, the first year of high school was absolutely amazing. Going into high school, I was very worried about um, making new friends, being in a new environment. A um, little, a little scary. Um, but my first year of high school was amazing. It was very fun, and I had a lot of really good connections, relationships, and I molded into the environment very well. And then grade ten came along, and I went through a bit of a tough time. Um, so the thing with death is when you're so young, you can't really fully comprehend not only death itself, but the circumstances behind the death, um, at least in this specific case. You know, I, I understood that uh, I, I can't even imagine what, what base level I understood as a nine-year-old. But when I was when I became older, this was around when I was 15 or 16, it's really hard to pinpoint the specific moment. But um, depression started to set in towards the beginning of grade 10. I went through a very, very traumatic period. Um, a lot of things were going on in my life at the time. One of the main ones was for the past few years before then, I was having struggles with my religion, uh, huge struggles with God, huge struggles with um, religion itself uh, that, you know, I, I, I couldn't talk to anyone about because I was in a very, and I don't blame my mother at all, because honestly, if I had came to her, she would have been totally fine with it. It was just my internal stigma of if I tell anybody this, they're going to oust me from the community, which is not true at all. But I was, I was a kid. I didn't really know how to uh, react in that situation. But, um, uh, this huge religious struggle, huge struggle with God. And I started breaking a lot of Jewish laws behind my mother's back. Um, I had been doing that for a few years. And then there was this moment at the beginning of grade 10 where I, where it all caught up to me. And I thought, Oh my God, I have been lying and manipulating to the only parental figure in my life for years. How can I get past the guilt of that? How can I live with myself? That's verbatim what I thought. And instead of this mistake that kids can make that, you know, you, you, you feel bad about something and you get past it. I took this as an, a, a, a crucial character flaw within myself. I thought I'm a liar. I'm a manipulator. I'm a bad person. I cannot escape this. This is an unwritable uh, wrong that I will not be able to escape for the rest of my life. And that was a very, very negative and illogical mindset, but it's what it's the mindset I was in at the time. Um, and that really caught up with me. And then again, at the time around this beginning of grade 10 period, um, a lot of stuff with my father began to resurface. Memories began to resurface that I never really dealt with. I have the worst short-term memory, but I have a really great long-term memory. Um, and it was hard for me to separate the image of the father I knew from the father that the person that he actually was without those drugs. Cause I, I know he was a good person, but it's not what I saw. And it's a lot of stuff I wasn't dealing with. And I wasn't talking to anyone about these problems. And <sighs> Um, also at the beginning of grade 10, this, this stuff's a little hard to talk about, but, um, in terms of explaining it properly, but, uh, I was having some real social troubles at the beginning of grade 10. I, in the, in grade nine, um, I had a class of about 28 kids and I would say I became friends with all of them. Beginning of grade 10, a lot of people I thought were friends were not friends and treated me awfully and um, kind of turned on me in this passive aggressive sort of way that I was smart enough to see through. Um, this one kid really, really messed me up. Um, I obviously won't give any names, um, but uh, it was, it was, 
he's, he's, I, I remember so vividly, um, this kid was, was saying a lot of things about me that weren't true to other people. And I, I was upset. I was very upset. So I was telling my friends and it's high school things get around. And I got this text from this person that was probably the most cause of that sort of trauma. And it said, it's ridiculous. It sounds like a, like a, like a drama, but, um, it said, I will destroy you. You have nothing on me. I would never say these things about you, which I knew was not true. And, you know, um, he just put himself above me in this like really threatening, I will destroy your social life, which realistically I had no grounds to do, but I was like, oh my God, I'm new to this school. How am I going to recover from this? He's the top of the grade where, you know, and that really, that really scared me. Um, so these sort of three things, uh, all culminated into this, um, the suicide attempt, um, in October, uh, it was right after Rosh Hashanah. Uh, you know, I, I tried to throw myself off of a tall building. Um, I think it's very important to talk about this, uh, this, this vivid experience, essentially my suicide attempts. So basically I, I went to a building that I thought, uh, had a ladder in the back of it. This really, this tall building that I thought had a ladder in the back that I could climb up and jump off of one in the morning. Um, I get to this, I get to this, um, so I get to this building and there's no ladder. Um, what I thought would be a release for me is not there. And keep in mind, I'm in a complete illogical headspace and I'm just thinking, ah, come on, you know, everything's going wrong in my life. Can I just have this one thing go right? Um, which makes no sense, but you know, with the mindset I was in and I was determined to end my life, which is an unfortunate sentence you don't want to be saying, but it was the reality. And I noticed it was this brick wall in the back of the building. And one of these sort of pillars are sticking out of the wall. It was a brick in, brick out, brick in, brick out sort of um, pattern. And I realized I could climb that. Um, so I did. I began to climb this structure, uh, not structure, these these bricks. I put my foot on one, put my hand on one, lifted myself up, put my foot on one hand on one, so on and so forth. I'm going and going and I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking, this is it. This is release. I'm done. I don't have to deal with any of this pain anymore. And I think I got very caught up. It's either, it's either I got very caught up in that thinking or someone above pushed me because I tried to grab up and my hand slipped and I fell, um, eight feet or, or more. No, definitely more. I don't know how much I felt. It was, it was amazing that I didn't have any injuries, but I fell and I landed right on my back, uh, on this pavement. And, um, I was gasping for air. Air was completely knocked out of me. It was very painful. Um, and it hurt. It hurt a lot. And I am, at the time, I was very pain intolerant. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been pain intolerant. And I'm just lying there, gasping for air for what seems like hours. And finally, I, I, I get air, and I'm looking up at the stars, and, I, and everything just stops. And I'm looking up at the stars, and I'm thinking, ow, that really hurt. Is this really what I want? <laughs> I'm thinking, is this really the way I want to go? Um, do I want to go? And I'm so conflicted, but I have this, I have this moment of something's wrong here for me to want to deliberately hurt myself. Who wants to deliberately hurt themselves? For the first time in months, I realize it is not normal to deliberately want to hurt yourself. So I call a friend of mine, um, a, a very close friend. Uh, like I said, one thirty in the morning, maybe. And I say, I just tell him, um, so I just tried to end my life. He is so calm. He is very, very calm, um, which was so surprising and actually very calming for me or easy, uh, easing for me. Um, he said, 
uh, oh my gosh, why would you ever try to do that? But not in like this rush tone. It was more of, I'm concerned for you as opposed to freaking out. Um, and he made it very clear that something was that, you know, that you, you need to do something about it. You need to go home and tell your mom everything. I was very resistant. I did not want to tell my mom anything because I was worried that I was worried, A, I would be a burden on her on, and B, I just didn't want her knowing that I was breaking a bunch of religious laws, if I'd be completely honest. Um, but he convinced me, he convinced me to go. Um, after honestly, he, he, th- he said, listen, if you don't go, I'm going to call the cops. Because you tried to end your life, and that's a you're, you're a danger. And I and not, he didn't say that verbatim, but um, and I and I did not want the cops getting involved. <laughs> um, not that I have anything to hide, but you know, I, it's pretty understandable. I ended up walking home, told my mom everything, literally everything. Um, I and like I said, I'm about 15, 16 at the time, and I I end I end my entire spiel with my mom about everything. I end it with I need help. And I recognize that I need help. And I was, it's, I'm very grateful that I had that sensibility to recognize that I needed help because if I had went up that wall, I don't know if I'd be talking on this podcast. Uh, so things, uh, things go by. I, I go to a therapist that didn't really work very well. Um, my mom is very resistant to antidepressants for the first few months. Um, but it's completely understandable. She, with her, you know, what she dealt with with opioids, she was very against pharmaceuticals and that sort of stuff. And I, I completely understood. So she wanted to try to do therapy first before we tried any sort of medications. It didn't work. Um, uh, unfortunately, it didn't work. Things got a little worse before they got better. Um, I was pulled out of school. Um, I was deemed, uh, in addition to all this depression, um, once, once after that attempt, I had this horrible social anxiety that I have not been able to get rid of to this day. I try, but it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to deal with. Um, I just felt this, this ever looming shame of, of everything I had done. Um, and then I, that shame manifested in a lot of other ways, but, um, uh, so I went to a therapist for a couple months and it really didn't work. Um, but then I went to this amazing, amazing therapist, incredible, incredible man, um, changed my life, saved my life. He immediately said, why are you not on medication? Um, you're at high risk of suicide. Why are you not on medication? And my mom eventually realized he was right. Put me on antidepressants and they helped the, uh, the well, not just the antidepressants because you can't just take antidepressants and depression's gone, but uh, antidepressants mixed with therapy slowly and slowly over the process of a few months, I was able to recover from my depression in, uh, in at first, not that well. It came back a bit later, but I will say, uh, once it got to, so that, that had to have been, so, sorry, I said October, but I didn't specify the year. It was October, 2016, uh, the suicide attempt was, and I think I fully recovered from depression in the summer of 2017. <sighs> yeah. Eventually I got past it and I learned f- a lot from it. And I will go into that a bit later and some other mechanisms that I was able to develop aside from therapy medication. And, um, Once I got past that depression, I realized that I need to use this story to help as many people as possible because people need to hear these stories and understand uh, what they are and how to help them. And that's what I've been doing um, at my school. I've been campaigning. I've made speeches about this in uh, in multiple places. I'm here on this podcast talking about it. And that's sort of where my life ended up. Thank you for sharing that that story. I mean, that's an incredible story. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the experience. I know... I've seen you talk before and you do a very good job of explaining the clinical part of it. Mm -hmm. 
So maybe you can talk a little bit about the clinical part and then go into the experience of what it was like, you know, both as we were speaking about briefly before we started recording, depression is both a, th- a thought process and a feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that as well. Absolutely. So the, there's a common misconception about depression that a lot of people have. And this sort of gets to a lot of people self-prescribing depression, especially at younger ages. Um, sadness and depression are, are, are not the same thing. I mean, sadness can be an effect of depression, but it's, it's so extreme that I wouldn't even use sadness as the right word. People are sad all the time. It, it happens. It's a human emotion. You get bad on a test and you're sad. You get rejected from work and you're sad. It doesn't mean you're depressed, right? Depression is this all-encompassing feeling and thought process that can take over your life in every way. And I'll explain. Usually, with with in terms of clinical depression, um, our our brain, uh, as it usually operates, has energy flowing to every part of the brain as it should. Our brains are are working as they should. Every area of the brain is devoted to a certain function. There's emotions, there's memory, there's moving your fingers, so on and so forth. Under the effect of clinical depression, as we understand it, um, most of those areas in the brain actually shut down. Not fully, you know, not catatonic, but they, um, as opposed to when they would be orange on a, on a, um, x-ray of a brain or like a brain scan on, on a yeah. brain scan as where they would be orange and active. They're more blue and mellow and toned down. Every area of the brain is very toned down under the effect of clinical depression, except for the emotional area of the brain, which is active as ever. Um, so that means, uh, it can manifest into incredible apathy and, uh, lethargy, lethargism, lethargy, <laughs> lethargy. Thank you. Um, apathy and lethargy. People don't get out of their beds. People don't want to do the hobbies they usually enjoy. People don't want to talk to people because those areas of the brain are not functioning properly. In addition to that, because the emotion, the amygdala area of the brain, uh, responsible for emotion is so proactive. The only thing you know is depression. You don't have the prefrontal cortex in your brain, which is responsible for logical critical capacity or logical thinking and problem solving and some areas of memory even. Um, you don't have that area to uh, regulate the amygdala. The amygdala is going firing on all octaves and telling you only emotions and you can only make your decisions out of emotions. And then when you have the effect of depression, which is a chemical imbalance and things become a lot more negative than positive, um, there's a gray veil over the world no matter what's going on. Uh the um that's all you know and that effect is is not easy to undo it's b- because of the nature of depression as a mental illness it's not something that you know for me at least it's definitely not fully gone it can never really be fully gone there are always ways to keep it at bay and obviously it doesn't mean you give up but because of the effect it has on the brain it never really vanishes um, um i just want to jump in for a second because one thing you just pointed out, which is that the emotion part of the brain is so strong that it shuts down the logic part of the brain. And coming back to the story you were telling before, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And the reason for many people why suicide seems like a good idea is because that sentence, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, people forget that the problems are temporary. Things will get better. In pretty much every single case, I'm, I'm going to say pretty much because, <laughs> you know, there's always that outlier. Outliers, in yeah. pretty much every single case, 
um, things get better. But because our brain is shutting down that logic part, we, it's not that we forget it, is that we cannot see it. We can't, you know, you can, somebody can tell it to you and your brain won't understand. You can't it. access it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you're completely right in, in the fact that a, most of us, you know, you get a cut, you put a band aid on it. That's a solution. Um, you're sad you eat ice cream and watch Netflix. That's a solution. Um, you know, destructive solution, but it's a solution. Uh, <laughs> uh but, uh, for, for the depressed brain, suicide is a solution. Your brain is telling you, okay, it's, it's this emotional, logical solution, logical and only built up by emotion, but it's, wait, you're feeling a bunch of pain and your life is in shambles. Why not end it? Then all your pain's gone. And your brain's telling you, yeah, do that, man. You're in pain. You know, your brain wants to protect you. In this weird way, suicide is a defense mechanism for depression. You know, your brain doesn't want to be in pain as much, uh, any, any more than you do. So, yeah. Maybe you can tell us more about yeah. the feeling. You know, you were describing before how things have a gray veil on it. Mm-hmm. Take us back to that. What was it like? You know, I think one of the problems with depression is that people don't necessarily know they have it. And because the brain isn't working properly, it's hard for the brain to diagnose itself. You know, this is one of the big problems with mental illness is if my stomach hurts, my brain tells me my stomach hurts. If my arm hurts, my brain tells me my arm hurts. But if my brain hurts, then it's not functioning well enough to tell me that it hurts. It's one of the reasons why mental illness is so hard to self-diagnose or so hard to self-diagnose correctly. Maybe if you describe for us some of what it felt like when you were in the throes of depression, people can you know relate to that and recognize, well, maybe maybe that's something I'm going through now because I feel similar. Absolutely. So depression, I'm, I'm going to talk about depression prevalently, but anxiety is a big part of it too. Thank you for pointing that out because often the beginnings of depression can come from anxiety and depression and anxiety kind of feed off each other. You know, where the anxiety is pushing the depression, the depression is pushing the anxiety, and they, they kind of rise together. Mm-hmm. So thank you for pointing that out about the anxiety. So anxiety is often a symptom of depression. Um, it can cause it, you're right. But for a lot of people, especially, uh, definitely me, anxiety, it's the onset and then it gets way worse once depression hits. So uh, for depression, I can say... <sighs> Really, the problem with depression is with mental health is not an exact science, but I will talk about how it how it uh, how it affected me. But it can affect people in so many different ways that I would not be able to list them all. Um, for me personally, I I was enclosed. I wanted to be in my bed, watch YouTube, and do nothing else. I didn't want to get up. I at first I didn't even want to go to therapy. Um, I didn't want to interact. I was pulled out of school because I didn't want to talk to people and I was very socially anxious when I did talk to people. It was this sense of I am not myself. I it was it's like you're almost bedridden. It's it's it, it can manifest into a physical illness in this weird pseudoscience sort of way where you 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 physically because of the way your brain is operative operating you you just can't have the energy to do things. For a lot of people, that's the biggest problem with depression and why you see people taking mental health leaves, you know, um, 
because you you can say you know people will say you know take a pill and walk around and you'll be fine but some people just can't take that step to walk around and that's the that's the biggest problem with it um that definitely definitely for me that was one of the biggest problems also the thought process behind it was was terrible every single small mistake that i made was a uncorrectable failure i remember very vividly i was doing math homework there was this one question when you get to algebra and, and stuff like that you you have to take like 10 minutes to do one question. And I did this one question for 10 minutes. And I was like, yes, I got the answer. Finally, go back and the answer's wrong because I did one number here and there. And that was it for me. I was, my night was ruined. I was, it was, it's the tiniest thing that you can go back and fix. But for me, it was, wow, you're never going to be good at this. You, you are the worst, man. How could you not see that one number in this when in reality it's arbitrary, but in my brain, it's, an incorrectable flaw, like with the lying to my mom or so on and so forth, you know, and, and that's one of the biggest differences between people who are depressed and not depressed is people who are not depressed can, you know, if they're logically thinking, can see when they're wrong and see how to correct it. But depressed people can see that they're wrong and that's it. They're wrong. It's, and it becomes, it's not that they're wrong, but they're a bad person. Exactly. Right. I, I find, again, speaking from my own experience and from working with people who suffer from depression, it's, a combination of perfectionism, I have to get it perfect the first time out, and then black and white thinking where it's either I'm amazing or I'm horrible. And since I'm, you know, in depression where everything's negative, I'm horrible. And then this very concrete thing where it's like, I did this one thing wrong, and then I'm of no value, right? I did one algebra problem wrong, I bring of no value to this world. It's very much a downward spiral in that sense. Um, so that's what depression can feel like. And anxiety couples with it very well. Anxiety, I think the best way to describe anxiety is, have you ever had that time where you're walking down the sidewalk or in your kitchen or wherever, and you trip, you slip, and the ground's rushing up at you, and you have this feeling in your chest. You have this feeling of, oh, oh, that's going to hurt. You have this sinking feeling. That's what anxiety has always been for me. And for multiple kids that I've talked to, that's exactly how they describe it. It's... For me, it was when I went to public areas, I stayed away from malls. I stayed away from school, obviously. I stayed away from even the plaza two blocks away from me where I usually buy pizza because I, I did not want to run into anyone I know. Again, coupling depression with anxiety, not only would it be anxiety that would hit me, but it would be if I even say one word wrong, this person is going to judge me for the rest of my life and I am stupid and I can't make sentences, right? Um, and that was bad. That was really bad. And that was very hard to get over. But that's the best way I describe anxiety. And a lot of people can get anxiety in many different places. Um, uh, usually social anxiety is the, is the most prevalent one. Sometimes people can do work and get anxious over the work they're doing or the piles and piles. And instead of thinking, all right, let's stop procrastinating. Let's just go through it. It's, oh my God, I'm never going to get through any of these papers. I'm done. I quit. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to sum up depression and anxiety. And what's amazing to me about depression and anxiety is that the very things that would help a person overcome them are the things you avoid doing. You spoke earlier about how just getting yourself to do anything like getting out, like with depression, and we'll get into how you you know fought depression and overcame in a minute, but part of it is getting out and being around people. And just the act of getting out, the act of taking medication, the act of the smallest thing, you know, when, and when I did my spoons episode a few episodes ago, I spoke about, uh, you know, spending spoons is a metaphor for spending energy, physical and mental. And the problem with depression is the spoons feel like they weigh 500 pounds. And then once you actually go to move the spoon, it's 
you know, it's just a spoon, Mm -hmm. but your brain convinces you that it's going to weigh 500 pounds. Mm. One of the things that I've noticed is that people have a lot of misconceptions about antidepressants. Can you tell us a little bit about antidepressants, what they're, what they were good for, for you, you know, how they helped, what they accomplished and what they did not accomplish. I do agree that a lot of people have misconceptions about antidepressants. Um, is it good to throw pills at every problem? No. And I think antidepressants can very much be overprescribed. However, um, the antidepressant I was on, which is fluoxetine, um, as opposed to more the serotonin inducing medications, this was one that balances things out a little better. Um, what antidepressants are able to do, a lot of people have the misconception that throwing antidepressants at a, it's one of two misconceptions. It's either a, uh, they don't work. They make everything worse. And you can't, you know, it, it just makes everything worse. Why would you take it if it makes it worse? Um, and uh, B is that the total opposite, you throw it at someone and they'll be totally fine just with them. So I'll break both of those down. So with the first one, there there is a problem where when you first take antidepressants, they can make suicidal urges worse. But that is kind of the point, And I'll explain why. Um it's it, what antidepressants are designed to do are to bring your brain up to a more functional level, a more a, a level that's more I don't want to say susceptible, but easy to work with in terms of therapy, because you are not supposed to take antidepressants and you don't go to the therapist. That is you cannot do that. I do not know why doctors let some people do that. That is you don't do that. Um, so once you take the antidepressants, yes, the problem can get worse. However, what you're supposed to do is go to a therapist immediately as you start the antidepressants, because then the therapist can work with the brunt of the problem, with the hardest part of the problem, and then work their way down the levels to the easier parts of the problem. And once you start with the worst, not only does the problem progress into lower and lower, but your brain is progressing higher and higher in terms of its functionality with the antidepressant, if that makes any sense. Um, so that's one of the misconceptions about antidepressants is that they just don't work, which is not true. They won't work if you don't go to a therapist. Um, because the other problem is if you get thrown antidepressants and you don't go to a therapist, then those worst thoughts are never, are never, uh, are never dealt with and they, they're stuck there and they do get worse and worse. And we have had people who have just gone on antidepressants and killed themselves, which is very unfortunate. Not extremely likely, but has happened. Um, then the second, and, yeah. and it is, it is worth pointing this out. It is more likely in children and teens. Yes. Which is the age you were. Yes. I was, I was 16 at the time. Um, and 16, they give a significantly lower dose, but it, it didn't matter that much. Um, and the second misconception is that uh, they will solve the problem entirely. Oh, I, I broke down both in the first one, didn't I? <laughs> okay. Um, so I'll just elaborate a little more. Um, the, Please do. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you, you cannot go with antidepressants without therapy. Uh, the two work in tandem with each other. They they go together because you take the medication, as I said, to get your brain to the proper level to work with the therapist, and the therapist helps you through it. Um, you cannot throw pills at a person and expect them to get better just instantly, or not even instantly, just solely on antidepressants alone. I remember th- there there was a brief time when I depression relapsed a bit, and I wanted. I was too busy with school at the time to deal with it effectively. I was thinking, God, I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to take so much time to deal with something. I, I have so much schoolwork. I have so much, so on and so forth. And I really want, this was a while ago. I really wanted to just go on medication, not go to therapy. My mom convinced me not to. And I am so happy she did <laughs> because if I just got on medication, I think things would have gotten worse and never gotten better. You'd need to go 
to a therapist with medication because the two are meant to work together. And that's the two misconceptions. Um, it can't completely solve the problem and uh, it making the problem worse is temporary, if at all. Thank you for that insight. I also want to um, touch on something that you kind of mentioned, taking antidepressants short term versus taking them long term. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Um, ultimately, you don't want, and this can go to the whole pharmaceutical thing, but ultimately you don't want your brain relying on medication for too long. With teenagers, um, it's actually, they can be on antidepressants for a prolonged amount of time and be okay. Um, but it's different in adults. I don't know the exact science, but all I know is from what I know from my therapist. But it is, it is good to, at a certain point, once you realize that you've fully recovered and you've had some time, you don't go off antidepressants the second you feel better because you never know what'll happen. You take a couple of months, you see how your life's going. And if you and a consulting doctor and your therapist decide it's time for you to go off antidepressants, you're in a state where you don't really need them. It's good to do that because you don't want to be dependent on a chemical forever um, or the, the medication forever, which is essentially a chemical. Um, what they will do is uh, slowly wean you off the medication. For example, I was on 20 milligrams. Then they gave me 15 milligrams, 10 milligrams, 5 milligrams until it was gone. So they slowly get your brain because, you know, it's – it's like putting someone on crutches and then pulling them away from them. You don't want to do that. You want to let them slowly heal. Um, you want to let them go from 20 to 15 to 10 to 5. It, it's good to get off antidepressants, but don't rush it, but also don't wait too long. It's a really tough balance, which is why you don't make the decision yourself. You consult your parents, your doctor, your therapist, or all three. The other thing about antidepressants, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm bashing <laughs> antidepressants. They're wonderful for what they do, but antidepressants do also come with serious side effects. Yes. Um, as you said, the most dramatic one is, is increased suicidal thoughts, which is counterintuitive, but real. Luckily it's initially, usually it, it doesn't, you know, if you have the proper therapist, it won't the entire time you're on medication, you won't be suicidal. Hopefully. Very true. <laughs> yeah. Very true. But every time I've spoken to, every time I've spoken to anybody about antidepressants, I make sure to mention it. And, yeah. and I say, and, and here's, what's interesting is, I point out that knowing that it's being caused by the medication is often enough not to follow up on those thoughts. In other words, when when a person has suicidal thoughts that are unexpected, like I'm on medication, why am I having these? It can really be scary for people and can lead to more anxiety and depression. Absolutely. Um, but knowing that it's a side effect of, of the medication, I, I find for for most people just that knowledge is enough again if they weren't on anything and there was just the emotion thing or if they weren't going to therapy then that might not be enough but when they're in proper treatment just that knowledge is enough weight gain and nausea are also two big side effects yes and the the nausea is generally when you're starting and when you're ending but also can be really scary because one of the side effects of anxiety which as we said before often goes to depression is nausea uh, and, and vomiting. And so when the thing that's supposed to be helping you is causing more of the symptoms. I, I do want to mention that everything I've talked about so far, um, most of my knowledge is with teenagers, um, not just from my own experience, but I have talked to a lot of people about their experiences, but most of them have been teenagers. There's a lot of crossover between the adults and teen uh, brains, obviously, but just know that maybe some of the things I'm talking about can't 100% be in all cases, um, especially because the teen brain is so underdeveloped compared to the adult brain, which is why 
the teen brain is so susceptible to depression because it is underdeveloped, um, which is why teen suicide and depression rates are skyrocketing. Side effects. Uh, luckily, everyone that I've had experience with hasn't had negative side effects to the physical extent. I'm not denying that it doesn't exist. It obviously exists. Um, I would say consult your doctor and figure out exactly what side effects you're more likely, because it is possible to, to predict some of those things you're more likely to have. And if those if, if that medication doesn't work, there are other antidepressants out there. I was, I've been talking about fluoxetine this entire time. There are many other antidepressants out there and you have to figure out what works for you. And that's where we're going to end it for this week. Thank you to everybody who's been listening. Thank you to everyone who's been sharing on social media, been sharing in real life. I truly appreciate it. If you're looking for a way to support the show, if you're looking for a way to spread the show, go to thoughtfulmindpodcast.com. We have a section on how to support the show there. And until next time, remember, go out, believe in yourself.